Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel 6, we're going to look at the first 11 verses. A story many of us are probably familiar with, but it's certainly not one uh, that uh, we, we turn to often. 2 Samuel 6, David is king, and uh, it's already off to a rough start at, at this point. So 2 Samuel 6, find it on page 278 in your pew Bibles, and if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starting in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with, with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating for the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines, uh, castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the ox stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against us, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark into the city of David. But David took it aside at the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for uh, gathering us here this morning. We ask, as we always do, you would open our entire selves, our bodies and souls, that we would encounter your word, be transformed by your gospel. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Seated. A few months ago, major news outlet, I won't tell you who it is because then you'll get all fire, fired up, but a major news outlet released a story uh, that the tone of the story implied that clearly because this is true, you can't trust the Bible. The headline was simply, Ancient Judeans ate non-kosher seafood Fish bones show. What the article argues is, say, even though the Bible says Jews didn't eat these things, we have clear archaeological and historical record that the Jews did eat these things. See, you can't trust the Bible. Dropped Mike, right? Now, there was one source this article failed to consult. This source would have demonstrated that of course, Israel frequently disobeyed its own laws. <laughs> and that source is readily available. It is in the public domain. In fact, this source is easy to purchase. In fact, it is the best-selling book of all time. It, of course, is the Bible. Of course, there is something to be noted here. It is pagans who were the ones shocked to find the people of God. 
in disobedience with the word and the will of God. Not the Christians. What it is that we have here is, 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 a, is a story that starts out really well. And we get really excited about it. But then it takes a, a, a dramatic and tragic fall. For the very same reasons. We, for some reason, aren't shocked to find the people of God living in disobedience. Because frankly, we're never bothered that we, as the people of God, are rarely living in disobedience. Notice there's really two things I want us to see in this text, which does not mean you'll get out early. The first thing is the contrast between good intentions and right obedience. Now, no one can question David's motivation in the story. He rightly understands that the proximity to God is a good thing. David has been crowned king over Israel, and we, we saw that in the previous chapter. This meant he, he, he pushed back the Philistines. Remember those two battles there at the Valley of the Giants? He, 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 he's turned Jerusalem into the city of David. It's now the new, new capital. And uh, now he is turning his attention to some of the more vital spiritual aspects of his role. And here we see the importance of moving the Ark of the Covenant to the city of David or to Jerusalem. The question then is, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Now, we're going to look at that in greater detail this evening from a New Testament perspective, but, but, but let us just oversimplify it. It was an ancient sacrament, uh, 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 sacramental box that represented, among other things, the presence of God. And what happened to it, right? If it's so important to the uh, cultic religion of Judaism, where's it been all this time? It's not like David is the first king. Like, where has it been? Well, of course, it comes out of the Exodus, right? That's, that's where, where it begins. And during the time of the judges and uh, the time of Saul, it, it uh, was really relegated to, to the side. Um, you may remember the, the foolishness of Eli. Uh, he was the, the priest whose two boys uh, didn't work out too well for, for them. Uh, the Israelites get the idea that if we just have this relic and we take it into a battle, it's an automatic victory for us, right? And so they take it out of the sanctuary in Shiloh, where it had been for, for many generations, and they, they, they take it out to battle, and guess what? They get, they get thumped. The Philistines take it, uh, and eventually they, they return it. Clearly, they're... they're uh, well... I got a funny joke that I'll make there, but we'll just move on. Um, come ask me afterwards. I'll tell you what the joke is. But uh, so, so, so they, they return the, the ark back to the Israelites. And at that point, it is staying in a place uh, uh, to Kiriath-Jerim. Now here in, in your text, it's, it's described as Baal Judah or Baal Judah. Uh, that, that is the, the uh, and at the time, you can see there's clearly Baal worship there. Later, it's, it's better known as Kiriath-Jerim. That won't be on your test. But there, for 20 years, it's been guarded in the private home of a man by the name of Abinadab. That name will be on your test. And so he's been taking care of it, making sure it is safe and sound and all that sort of stuff. So finally, David has decided we got to get it off the sidelines, get it off the bench, and put it into uh, the capital city of my kingdom. Now, why is he doing this, right? Now, we need to note here, the text doesn't pull us aside and says, look, dear reader, this is David's real motivation. And we've we got to be honest with that. However, I think it's clearly implied some of his motivation. The first motivation is usually uh, uh, the first motivation, right? And that is politics. 
Now, I am so glad politics does not motivate us and get us to do anything today. Aren't you? Oh, man. I mean, I would just say for like the last 18 months, you and I have not even had a conversation about politics. I am just so glad. I mean, can you imagine how miserable life would be if all we did was talk and complain about politics? Can you imagine? Oh, it may take quite an imagination to imagine that, but uh, I'm glad that's not reality. Anyway, so, so politics, right? Here he is. He's a brand new king, and the Ark of the Covenant is a very powerful symbol in Israel. One of the great challenges that the, the early Jewish kings have is uniting all of Israel. So, so Saul seemed to have been able to manage that to a certain extent. David's work is going to take some time. Remember, he's crowned king by a single tribe. And then when he's crowned by uh, the broader nation, they go out of their way to say, remember, you're bone of bone and flesh of flesh. You're no different than us. You're to represent all of us, right? And, and they, they make it clear to David, you are to unite us. And this reloc- relocation effort is a powerful way to do that. Notice there in verse one, he, he, he employs 30,000 people. Now, that is a public works uh, job there. And he employs them, goes to get them to do this. And so he's uniting the nations. You can see the political work that is going on here. His goal is to make Israel one nation under God. There is another motivation I think he has there, uh, and that is the motivation of religion. Israel is to be a theocracy. And David, you'll find later, expresses a desire to build a temple. He clearly wants his kingdom to be associated with the worship of Yahweh. And this is the first step in that process. So in summary, David's desire to relocate the Ark of the Covenant was to symbolically demonstrate that Yahweh, the God of Israel, can no longer be relegated to the sidelines. Instead, the will and the word of God will be the priority of David's administration. Now, we all agree that is a good thing. The problem is, in his effort to communicate this, David failed to seek the will and the word of God. The Bible is very clear on how to transport the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, it represents God's very presence. This is not something you should take lightly. Of course, he should have formed a transport of the Ark of the Covenant committee. The church would have had to vote on that. Right, So the nominating committee would bring the transport of the Ark of the Covenant committee to the church, who then would vote for it. So now you got two votes. And then that committee would have to meet. They would have to set a date and time, and half the dates and times would be inconvenient for everyone there. And then, and then they would have to communicate again to the church, right? And the sound from I'm sure this is how they should have done it, right? But the Bible is very clear how to transport it. One passage worth noting is in Numbers chapter 4. It says, When Aaron and his sons, these are your first priests of the Aaronic priesthood, finished covering the sanctuary and all the ferns of the sanctuary, this includes the Ark of the Covenant, as the camp sets out, remember that they are traveling through the wilderness, right? Uh, the, the, the tabernacle is a portable temple. The Ark is at the center of that. Uh, the sons of Koath, those are Levites, Uh, shall come to carry these. They must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are are, are to carry. So let me summarize what this verse and, and, and the rest of it says. You are not to touch, you are not to look, and you are not to use carts. There are three basic rules of transporting. Do not touch, do not look, 
do not use cards. In other words, you cannot touch this, he is saying. However, in his effort to declare before Israel, behold your God, he failed to drop to his knees to listen to his God. Proximity to religion does not make one righteous. What is it that David ordered his people to do? Touch, look, and use carts. Clearly, this is a significant event in the reign of David. Again, he is gathering 30,000 people for his work, and his intentions are good. He enlists the help from around the nation. That's a good thing. He announces the trip and the plan. He arrives at Abinadab's house. What an honor that would have been. He utilizes Abinadab's sons for the transportation. And you'll notice there in verse 6, everybody's excited. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, uh, uh, it's verse 5, I'm sorry. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating for the Lord with songs and lyres and harps, etc., etc., Right. So, that, well, again, I've got to hold back there, but uh, make another joke. Uh, but we can all agree by the end of verse five. These are good things with right motives. In his effort to do the right thing, he does it the wrong way. In his disobedience, the lives of others and his nation are affected. Remember, God cares more about obedience than he does about PR. David's great error is that he failed to consult the word and the will of God. Now, when it came to war, David was more than willing to inquire of God. But when it came to spiritual matters, he failed in this area. Doesn't this sound familiar? Maybe right now you're trying to think about what... What college is, uh, should, should, should I be going to? What's the right college for me or my children or grandchildren? Such a big decision. We'll probably pray over something like that. Trying to get through finals coming up in a few weeks. You might pray about that. When that director of yours gets on your last nerves, you're probably going to pray about that. When the doctor gives you that poor diagnosis, you're probably going to pray about those things. But often we're silent about more spiritual matters, aren't we? We think, well, I have good intentions. I can figure it out in the end. It's always their fault, isn't it? It seems that those critical moments of our own spiritual health are more hesitant to pray. So like David, many of us want to do the right thing without first consulting the word and the will of God. And so we'll say, well, marriage is good. It is good. But in desiring a good thing, we will find that we will compromise our values and our worth in order to lasso that spouse. Tradition is a good thing. But often we let it to be a barrier to God's work. Work, vocation, careers, good things but often can become our identity. Intimacy, a good thing, but it can become an ultimate thing in our society. Children are a blessing, but then we leave behind the security of a healthy marriage. Caring about justice is a good thing, 
But often we leave behind the gospel that is at the root of true justice. Going to church is a good thing. But too often we assume that the sin lies at the door of someone else. What is it that Solomon wrote in Proverbs 14? There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, is death. David has to learn this lesson, doesn't he? Later he will desire a good thing to build a temple. But in that context, later context, he seeks the word and will of God. And there, God says no. And David submits to that will. David learned his lesson from this day. The question is, where will we? It isn't enough to have good intentions. What matters most is right obedience. But notice also in this text the contrast between the fear of God and the fear of man. While everything was going well there at the end of verse 5, the excitement, the rejoicing gets turned into sorrow and fear. You see it there in verse 6, they're, they're escorting the Ark of the Covenant and the ox trips, right? They came to the threshing floor of Nacon. Uzzah put out his hand to the Ark of the Covenant, took hold of it, for the ox had stumbled. Now, let's be honest. Uzzah does here what every one of us would have done, right? All of us would have done this. If the Ark of the Covenant was falling, you would have reached your hand out. You would have made sure it was secure, right? Because sometimes... Oxen trip, right? That happens. And the main thing is to get the Ark of Covenant where it is going. So that is what he does. What is surprising about the story is what happens in verse 7. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his heir, and he died there beside the Ark of God. So God responds to the singular act of protecting the Ark of Covenant by striking him dead. No second chance, no explanation, just death. Can we just add a footnote here? We've already hinted at it, but can we just add a footnote here? Uzzah's death is a direct response of David's failure to consult the Word of God. You do see that, right? Do not miss the point that sin is communal. It is a lie from hell that says, well, this is my sin. This is my choice. This is my body. These are my decisions. It won't affect anyone. All the while, you're affecting everyone around you. Had David gone about this the right way, had he consulted the the priests and the, the Levites who do this thing for a living, who are trained in this area, had he done those simple things, Uzzah would have died. David's disobedience hurts other people. In the same way, our disobedience, our sin, negatively affects other people. But notice David's initial reaction, I suspect, is our reaction. It's there in verse 8 that David becomes angry at God. David thinks that Uzzah doesn't deserve this sort of punishment. What a rash decision God has made. And so David reserves his anger, not at Uzzah or even at himself, but at God. So much so, he names the place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah. Now, notice here, David's reaction is not to look in a mirror. 
but rather to blame someone else. Doesn't this sound familiar? Not you, of course you don't, but, but everyone else around you does it, right? Right? I mean, ever since the garden, our number one defense is find someone else to blame. Blame the culture, blame the government, blame policy, blame that, those neighbors, blame the church, blame leadership, blame my spouse, blame the kids, blame my spouse's upbringing, thus blame the in-laws, right? Blame whoever it is. But the buck never stops here. And when we say the buck uh, stops here, what we really mean is, well, I inherited this mess, right? This is what we mean. That sounded political. That was not meant to be political. Right as, I mean, just, you know, those who didn't catch it as political, now you're seeing it as political. I just ruined that. But anyways, Democrats and Republicans do that. There, right, everyone's guilty. Um. But that's David there. In fact, the word there in, uh, in verse 8 is an interesting word. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Now, that word broken out, your translation may say struck out. It, it means all the same thing. That is the same word used in chapter 5 to describe God destroying the Philistines with the Jewish army. What's David saying here? He's saying, well, I'm all for God defeating the Philistines, striking them, bursting out against them. But who does the God think he is to, to point the finger at me? Doesn't this sound familiar, Christians? It ought to, because nothing has changed. The temptation is to assume that for us here in America right now, the temptation is to assume that the God of 2 Samuel 6 is not the God of 2021. I mean, God doesn't do this sort of thing. I mean, aren't you glad? Boy, I am. Moving on. But if you read the Bible, you'll find that there are parallels with this story throughout the Bible. Maybe we should begin in Leviticus chapter 10 when God strikes down some of the first priests in all of Israel, Nadab and Abihu, for offering the text says, strange fire. We can turn to the New Testament. We see the same thing, right? One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, here they are, lying to the Holy Spirit in the youthful church, struck dead right there. See, there is a clear pattern in Scripture that the fear of God should never be diluted by the people of God. Now, I do think there is some relevance here. Because the problem isn't, what did God do to Uzzah? But how did the people of God approach their creator? They approached him without appropriate fear. And when we don't fear God, we diminish the power, the glory, and the holiness of God. We bring them down to our side. Yeah, just, just go on down there, grab you a cart. We, we, we've got some in the back. Grab you a cart, put it up there, and just march it down there. We'll, we'll have a band follow you. It'll be great. Don't worry about it. It'll be on scene and everything. Just go on and do that. And in the process, they forgot, oh, I remember. We are standing in the presence of Almighty God. That is not something to take lightly. In fact, David's reaction Changes immediately, doesn't he? He has this, this reaction of anger. Who do you think you are? And then he has this reaction of where he actually is. He is standing in the presence of God. So verse 9 says, and David was afraid. 
Anger surrenders to godly fear. David's error in shortcutting obedience and failing to fear the Lord, he, he discovers that God is not an abstract principle. Rather, he is a living, divine being. Now, let's, let's be honest. The idea of the fear of God has been diluted in our day and time. One of the things that we do is, is we, we say, well, okay, what is fear of God? It just means reverence, okay? Well, it can. But there's a Hebrew word for reverence, and you don't translate it fear of God. Can I give you the Hebrew fear of God? It's three words. Fear of God. That's the Hebrew. Right? I have three degrees from prestigious school just to let you know that. Right, All your translations are translating this the right way. The Bible demands and narrates for us the fear of God. It's very clear. Isaiah chapter 8, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. We don't talk about that much in, in, in our VeggieTale theology, do we? Later in Genesis 15, or earlier, Genesis 15, remember, Abraham is, is, is going to sign this covenant with God, right? And remember, Abraham goes to sleep, and what happens is that God walks through the, the, the carcass that you remember we talked about on Wednesday nights. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. What is that? That is the presence of God right there before Abram. Job chapter 23, therefore I am terrified at his presence. And when I consider, I am, I am in dread of him. Does our worship look like this? Does our attitude and spiritual journey look like this? No, what we do is we relegate our spiritual journey to the sidelines, whether it's curious Jerem or, 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 or we'll call it a place of convenience. Bible does not narrate the wrath of God because he is scaring us away. It narrates the wrath of God that leads to the appropriate fear of God so that we may approach him as creatures before a creator on our knees, that we would approach him as subjects before a king. God is not your buddy. He is your king. His ways, as we saw earlier, is not our ways. His thoughts, not our thoughts. Now, there are benefits of the fear of God, I think, are worth highlighting here. Let, let us, I think I've got four here. We'll go from real quick. The first is, the fear of God produces holiness. In Exodus chapter 3, remember Moses at the burning bush. He says, don't come near. Right? You've got to take your sin. There is an appropriate way to, to approach the presence of God. The place you're standing on is holy ground. So in this dreadful scene of the burning bush, God, Moses encounters a holy God. And in that context, it makes sense why, God, why Moses receives the, the law of God. Because the Holy One demands holiness. And failure to fear God is the failure to live in holiness. Proverbs mentions this. Says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil perverted speech. Now notice there. Fear of God leads to holiness. The hating of evil. Uh, the hating of, of pride and, and arrogance and perverted speech, all of that is, is together. Fear of God leads to holiness and righteousness. Now, look at our society right now. What's the problem? It's not who is elected and who wasn't elected. The problem is we do not fear our Creator. We make a mockery of Him. And when you don't fear your Creator, when you don't come to Him as King, holiness is far far away. Fear of God produces holiness. It also produces wisdom. 
This is why Proverbs mentions the fear of God all the time. In fact, the foundation of wisdom is fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Is anyone awake today in our world? This is the summary of what it is that's wrong. Why are we fools choosing fools to make foolish decisions? No matter what tag you put on what their mascot is, we do not fear the Lord. Same thing in chapter 14, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one man may turn away from the snares of death. You want to turn things around? Choose wisdom. You want to choose wisdom? Fear the Lord. Chapter 15, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. I can't just look around. We are a trivial, foolish people. And it isn't because of our education. It isn't because of socioeconomics. It is because we do not fear God. Thirdly, it produces justice and righteousness. In 2 Samuel 23, it says, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, he rules in the fear of God. If only I could think of an application there. Same thing in 2 Chronicles 19. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking a bribe. Again, where there is corruption in society... When there is foolishness in the home, when there is brokenness all around, the reason is we do not fear God, and we've all become us's. Finally, well, let me just add, if you want a just society, fear the Lord. You want a civil society, fear the Lord. You want a, want a peaceful society, vibrant home, intimate marriage, genuine worship, the root and the cause is the fear of God. One, la- one, one, one last thing. It produces righteousness and courage. Jesus says in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body. Here's a little secret. You and I will fear someone, and we will give them some authority in our lives. You and I will fear someone. Either you will fear man, you can call it government, you can call it regulations, you can call it neighbors, your past, cancer, culture, or the opinion of others. You you will either fear man you will fear God. Whomever you fear, you will surrender to. And you will be as courageous as possible only because you fear them. The difference between the fear of man and the fear of God is that with your Creator, there's a little thing called grace. Have you noticed this in cancer culture? Chances are right now, many of you are more afraid of what someone else may do to you, think about you, say about you, than you do God, who holds your life and soul in his hand. Why do we fear man more than God? As a result, we have a society that is very religious, but no righteousness. We have laws, but no liberty. We are a society without a cross. David's humility, brought about by righteous fear, leads him to a holy God who is merciful. That is the key to salvation. That's the key of redemption. So you'll notice there at the end of verse 9, David asked the right question. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? 
Notice there before, he's like, I got this. Don't worry. I'm the king. I've got the badge and everything. You should check my, my LinkedIn account. I got a great resume. Everything's wonderful. I, I got this. Don't worry about it. Then he encounters God as he really is. What's his response? What was I thinking? Who am I? Why would the presence of God want to come for me? I am a man, as Isaiah would say, a man of unclean lips. And I dwell with the people of unclean lips. Now he's reminded of who the real king is, and it isn't him. And reminded immediately of Daniel 4. Remember when King Nebuchadnezzar goes mad. What is it he discovers? He writes a poem where he declares that God's kingdom is greater than even his kingdom. Same thing happens in, in 1 Samuel 6. The Ark of the Covenant is being transported from the Philistines uh, back to the Israelites, and it settles in, in Beth Shemesh. And while it is there at Beth Shemesh, People are looking upon the, on the ark, and God strikes down 70 men. And, and, and it says this in 1 Samuel 6.20, The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? To whom shall he go up away from us? That's the question that the Bible wants to ask, isn't it? Who can stand before a holy God? And the answer is, no one. David is saying here, who am I that I would dare to think I would bring God's presence next door to my palace? See, the Beth, people of Beth Shemesh realize that no one is worthy to stand or even to look upon the Lord. That has not changed. God is Holy. And we must stand in awe and fear of him. You know, whenever that media company published that article about Jews eating food they weren't supposed to, the way evangelicals responded is the way American evangelicals always respond online. Responded with indignation. We scoffed at their biblical ignorance. We trolled their social media accounts. We mocked them for thinking they finally disproved the Bible. We blamed them for their biases. All of these things, of course, Jesus did when he was around. Yet not a single one of us ever stopped to ask, could the same thing be said of me? Could it be said of us? Sure, we all know what God demands, but we've become content with lesser than. Could the same thing be said of you and me right now? Dear church, do we desire good things or the right things? Do we fear man more than we fear God? Many of us want God to show up in a mighty way in our lifetimes, and I do too. But I'm afraid too many of us are going about it the wrong way. And if we're not careful, we're about to extend our hand. And it'll be too late. Let's pray.